0: Uh, another man who's always been one of my favorite preachers is a guy named Stuart Briscoe. Um, he's in his nineties now, but uh, years ago he told a story about a, a good friend of his who uh, was asked to to do a funeral for a I don't remember if it's a soldier or a veteran, but either way, uh, his family and his military friends uh, of the deceased. Um, one of the military to play a role in the service, and this was at a big funeral home in the Milwaukee area where Stuart ministered for so long. And and uh, the the pastor wasn't familiar with this funeral home, but went and they were deciding how his military buddies could best honor their friend. And so here's what they decided: at the beginning of the service, the the casket was down front and the pastor was going to instead of leading the casket down he would lead this sort of honor guard of his friends down the center aisle where they would fan out they would salute they would lead a moment of silence and then the pastor would lead them uh, out the side door and that's that's what they did the, the pastor led them in quiet military precision they marched to the front they fanned out salute moment of silence It was great. And the pastor then led them as planned off to the side and right uh, in through the door to the broom closet, the like storage closet that was off the side of the chapel. And as the pastor noticed his mistake and stopped quick, they all just sort of bumped into each other outside of that door. They had to regroup and march again to whatever the correct door was. And And that story illustrates this truth. It it doesn't matter how good someone is at leading. It doesn't matter how many followers they can amass. If he or she leads people in a bad direction, like no good will ultimately come. In last week's passage, we followed the story of one man named Jonathan who only had one follower, his armor bearer. But Jonathan uh, was was motivated by faith, he was fueled by courage, and he was aimed at obedience to God in the covenant he was in with God, and and he was aimed at what would glorify God, whether in his life or in his death. And so even though there were only two of them, a great victory resulted, And, and today, We're going to see the results, or kind of the second half of that battle. And unfortunately, Jonathan's not the king of Israel. His father, Saul, is. And Saul is going to remind us about the frailty of human leadership and how fickle it can be. Let's read our passage today. It's kind of a long one, kind of a confusing story, but I'll help us make sense out of it. Uh, as we go through first Samuel chapter fourteen verses twenty four through fifty two now, the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day, for King Saul had put the people under oath, saying, "Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and until I have avenged myself on my enemies." So none of the people in the army tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest and There was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Uh Uh-oh, your father strictly put the people under the oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little bit of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Verse 31. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon and the people were very weary. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then Saul was told, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And He said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Verse 34, Saul said, "'Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, "'Each of you, bring his ox, his sheep, and slaughter it here and eat, "'and do not sin against the Lord by eating it with the blood.'" So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there at the stone. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, "'Let us go down after the Philistines by night "'and take spoil among them until the morning light.'" And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God. Hey God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer Saul on that day. Saul said, draw near here all you chiefs of the people and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So if he's the one that sinned, he's going to die. But not one of all the people answered him. And then... Saul said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey. With the end of the staff that was in my hand, here I am, I must die. Saul said, may God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, or in that manner, the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the sons of Ammon, Edom, the the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines, and wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, and he delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, uh, uh, father of Abner was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw saw any mighty man or valiant man, he attached him to his staff. There's our passage today. We pick up, like I said, really sort of in the middle of this battle that broke out last week. So, Israel's chasing a defeated enemy, but the enemy's not the problem in this passage. King Saul is the problem in this passage. Verse 24 says, there is a problem. The men of Israel, the army was hard pressed that day, but they weren't hard pressed by the Philistines. They were hard pressed for, because King Saul had put the people under an oath. Here was the oath. Paul, Saul basically made everyone raise their right hand and promised to not eat anything. All day that day they fought. When he finally decided if you were here last week, if you finally decided to go help Jonathan who had started this victory, but Saul said, before we go, no breakfast, nobody eats anything. Does that seem like a dumb plan? If it does, you're paying attention. Like if your kid's coach said, nobody can eat any, anything the day of the big game, right? And we don't play till that night. You'd think that per- he was a crazy person and you might be right? It's a bad idea. And I want you to know, this is, there's nothing biblical in this. This is all Saul and none of God. What would motivate such a seemingly silly plan? Well, Saul tells us, pay attention here. He says, I put a curse on anyone who eats before, before evening, until the day's over, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Do you hear the direction in which Saul is leading this thing? Saul leads selfishly. I mean, this really is some like tin pot dictator stuff. This sounds like something uh, like Idi Amin if you, or Saddam Hussein or, or someone like that would have said. He basically said, you don't get what you need until I get what I want. And when leaders lead selfishly, they got to do stuff like this. The common cause is not what motivates everyone. Because we're, we're not headed toward the common cause. Our aim is me as the leader, my desires and my wants. Well, how do I get other people to follow me and just pursuing what I want? Well, I make them scared to not follow along. You use fear to coerce loyalty. That's what Saul has sort of stumbled into. So men are following. Saul is leading. But they're not going in a good direction. So trouble is likely ahead. We find that trouble beginning in verse 25. When uh, the, the victorious Israel, Israeli army finally joins Jonathan in pursuing the enemy. And at some point, given the pursuit of the defeated Philistines, uh, a bunch of the army goes through a forest and there's some honey on the ground. And that seems like weird. Like, where did this honey come from? I don't. Actually, I do know where this honey came from. Bees. Bees is where the honey came from. But I don't know how it got on the ground. Was it up in a tree? Did it get, you know, knocked over by a spear and the comb, honeycomb fell on there? I don't know. I do know there are times that bees will make hives underground. And I know that because I played junior high football. And one time, I was an eighth grader, I think. We practiced someplace where we never practiced. There was a girls' correctional facility across the street from my high school. True story and we couldn't practice where we normally would, and so we went to this big lawn where we'd never practiced before at the girls' school, and we were just, uh, we didn't have pads on, we just had our helmets and our little shorty shorts back then, and we all got lined up to do our calisthenics and warm-ups as we did back then, and of course you start with the hurdler stretch. You remember the hurdler stretch, right, where you, you lay down, you put one leg way back there, and a guy on my team plopped down in the hurdler stretch right over the opening to an underground beehive. And that's when I learned bees sometimes make hives underground. When I close my eyes, I can still hear his screams to this day. That has nothing to do with this passage, but I knew that's my only chance to tell that story right there. So I had to do it. However, this honey got to be there, as the soldiers are streaming through there. Jonathan sees the honey and he takes the opportunity to to eat some he uses his staff maybe there's bees still on it I don't know but he eats some of this and he takes this opportunity to boost his blood sugar and he basically films the first one of those Snickers commercials you know where the, the person becomes a less cranky version of himself after a snack and one of his buddies goes oh no you don't know about the oath? Jonathan's like, well, what are you talking about? I was on a secret mission all night. I... He says, oh man, your dad put a curse on anyone who ate anything. And that's when Jonathan sort of looks at the honey and he looks around at how sluggish the whole army is. And he realizes, my dad has really made a terrible mistake. Jonathan says, "We would have finished this job against the Philistines if it wasn't for this dumb rule my dad made." If Jonathan makes a mistake here, if Jonathan shows any youthful inexperience, it's that Jonathan criticizes his dad and his king openly. What he says isn't wrong, but you know that the Bible's very honest about its, its main characters. He criticizes his dad openly. But he knows, man, more of the enemy is going to get away. And this is going to lead to much greater loss of life later. Uh, And we put that aside for a sec. We'll need to know this later. The scene changes then to later that evening as the sun is going down. We learn that the soldiers in the army, most of them, many of them, sin. Now, they don't sin by disobeying Saul's order to not eat. Uh, they don't disobey that at all. They disobey by, by breaking a command of God. Do You know what the food laws are? for Jews, for the Israeli people. In the, in the law, God gave Israel only. We're not under the food laws, but Jesus made that clear. The New Testament makes that clear. But, but God gave Israel these really weird rules about what they can and can't eat. And some of them, they're just weird. They just serve to, to keep Israel distinct and separate. And among those rules, where God tells Israel what they can and can't eat, among animals that they can eat one of God's rules was that they, animals had to be slaughtered in a way where the blood drained from the animal before any meat was butchered from the animal. Every Israeli soldier knows that's in the law. But what they do, as soon as the sun goes down, they're released from this oath. The day's over. And so we're told they just start pouncing on the animals that were the Philistines' animals, we're told they butcher them on the ground or they kill them on the ground. That just means they weren't elevated. They weren't drained. They don't wait. I don't even know if they cook the things, but maybe they do. But regardless, it's sin. It's wrong. Because God said a Jewish person, an Israeli person, can't eat that. Well, that's told to King Saul. Saul. And so Saul like, oh man, we may have made God mad here. He orders this huge stone to be rolled in, which becomes a makeshift butcher shop. And he says, send the word tell everybody to bring animals here. This is where they have to be killed. They can be elevated on this stone. The, the blood will run down and, and this will be our, uh, our butcher shop. And then uh, Saul built an altar to the Lord, which is not the stone, it's separate. Presumably, that's to try to make atonement for the sin of the army. Does that make sense? That's what happens there. I want to say a couple things about this sin of these soldiers. Every man who ate an animal that they knew had not been butchered incorrectly was responsible for that sin. He has no excuse he shouldn't have done it but even though that's true this is also true Saul made that sin more likely if his men were not completely famished they would have been more likely to do this correctly had they been able to as they run through a camp an abandoned camp of the Philistines pick up a little bread and eat it on their way through this sin would have been less likely Logically speaking, correct? So both those things are true. We are responsible for our own sin. We also can make sin in other people more likely by the way we treat them, by the way we act. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Now, the scene changes again later that evening. King Saul decides, hey, I want to do a night attack on the Philistines. But keep in mind how this has gone down though. The men were chasing, they're chasing, they're chasing, they're killing, they're doing what armies do and it's going great. As soon as the sun goes down, they don't care about pursuing the enemy anymore. They've got to stop and eat. The enemy's getting away. Jonathan, this is what he said, this is not going to work out well. King Saul, he doesn't say it here, but he realizes, I've messed up. He tries to rectify that by ordering a night attack against an enemy they now are not in contact with. That's very dangerous. It just wasn't done in the ancient world. I don't know if you know this, but they didn't have night vision goggles back then, right? This was very, uh, so let's go press the attack, which should have been done already. His military guys say, whatever you say, boss. But there's at least this one priest, Ahijah, we met him last week, who says, you know, we should probably ask God if he's going to be with us in this because this is so scary. So they inquire of the Lord. This divination is what this is. Divination is anytime someone uses some material thing from this world to try to glean information from the spiritual world. And there's a, in the Old Testament, there were a couple kinds of divination that God signed off on for Israel, like the Urim and Thummim. That's divination, it is. This isn't one of them, and we shouldn't be doing any of this today. But that's what he tries to do. They ask God a question. We're not told if they cast lots, if they uh, use the Urim and Thummim, the colored stones. But they ask God a question, and then cast the lots or do whatever they do. And whatever method they use has at least three possible answers. Their question is, shall we attack? Will you be with us and give, them, uh, give us the enemy if we attack? Three possible answers. Yes, go ahead. No, don't do that. Or like busy signal, please call back later. We're sorry. The party you have, right? And that's what happens. Saul asks a question and he doesn't get a clear answer from God. And that makes King Saul very angry. That's why Saul says, We are going to launch an investigation to see who is at fault, who sinned the sin that has cut off communication between God and me. Because God's not talking to me, I keep getting a busy signal. So let's investigate this, get to the bottom of this. Now, I'm going to go quickly through his investigation. We're not going to talk about his investigative technique here because this whole thing's a sham. No matter what this investigation uncovers, know this. Saul is the reason God's not talking to Saul. Do you know how I know that? Because God gave King Saul like a hotline To hear from God. What was the name of that hotline if you've been here for a few weeks? Samuel. The prophet Samuel worked right with King Saul to tell Saul exactly what God said. But Saul didn't listen. So Samuel, the the red hotline phone, left like, you won't listen to what I say. You won't listen to what God says. So, good luck, you're on your own. So, Saul, and this is very common with leaders who try to lead things in selfish directions, anytime something goes wrong, what do they want to do? Find someone to blame. Find someone to point the finger at. Here's something else that's very common with people who actually I'm leading this for what's best for me. So people think I'm awesome. So I make more. So I whatever. It's really hard to stomach when someone else does well. If someone else gets positive attention. If someone else gets some accolades or acclaim. So in my opinion... There's two possibilities here. Either God makes sure this investigation points at at Jonathan. I think King Saul makes sure this points at Jonathan. I think we're seeing a glimpse inside of King Saul's heart and boy, is it dark in there. I think he wants to get rid of his son because the men know who the real like man of god is courageous leader and Saul can't stomach anyone being spoken well of being adored being followed however this goes down this investigation this sham of an investigation does Point at Jonathan. And so Saul says to Jonathan in verse 43, What have you done? Does that sound familiar if you've been here for a few weeks? Tell me what you have done. It's exactly what the prophet Samuel said to Saul a few weeks ago. What have you done? What did King Saul do when he was asked that question? What have you done? Oh, I couldn't help it. You didn't come on time. It's the men's fault right? Find someone else to blame, justify, rationalize, projection. Look at what Jonathan does when he is called on what he does wrong. What have you done? He's like, well, I tasted honey. I ate. You said we weren't supposed to eat. The punishment is death. So I guess it's my day to die. Very different from his dad. Also notice, here's how self-focused Saul has become. It makes perfect sense to Saul. He thinks people will buy this. The big sin here, the big problem here, is that someone disobeyed me. Saul can take or leave what God says to him clearly. But let someone disobey Saul. And boy, that's when heads start to roll. Fortunately for all who are involved, the army's having none of this. The army, the men, step up and say, Jonathan ain't dying. Should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Boy, I bet Saul didn't like that line. From a human perspective, Jonathan is the military hero of the story. Now, God is the one who brought the victory. Jonathan said that before he ever did what he did last week. But the men know Jonathan's the real hero. That's why I believe his dad, in this moment, wants to get rid of him. And they say, You can't do it, King. And Jonathan is saved. That's the story. There's one paragraph attached here we read. I'm not going to put it on the screen again. It's very interesting that it's here, but that's about the only interesting part of it. Uh, verses what, 47 through 52, that's the summary of King Saul's career. Very normal for a king to have a paragraph like that written about him, but when would that normally happen for someone? The summary of their whole life. What do we call those things? It's an obituary. And they happen for kings all the time, but they usually happen like after they're dead, at the end of their life. Saul doesn't die till chapter 31. So part of this is like, what's this doing here? Well, it's here because Saul is not done being alive. We're not done with Saul, but God is done with Saul. In chapter 15, God is going to reject this dude as king. And so I think that's why the author puts his obituary, his his career summary here. But that's the end of our very sort of confusing story. When you understand it, it, I mean, it might be confusing, but it is, as all Scripture is, it is useful for teaching and for correcting. There's some valuable lessons in here. I picked out four if we will allow God's Word to correct us and to teach us, I think this passage can do just that. Four things from this passage I want you to take home. First, confusing man-made rules with God's rules always eventually leads to trouble. This was always a problem for Saul, right? You can do this in a a number of different ways. You can be confused that a rule you made up actually is God's rule, or you can just confuse them in priority. Like, and that's kind of Saul. Saul seemed to know what God's rules were. That's why he got upset that the men ate the meat with the blood in it but which one made him angrier when people disobeyed God or when people disobeyed Saul, right? Anytime we get confused in the importance of God's rules versus ours, trouble ensues. Now, there's nothing wrong with man-made rules in the right context. We have some rules here like for when people use the church that are not like written in the Bible. Is that okay that we have those? Of course. There are rules at school that don't come from the Bible. Is it okay the school has rules? Yes. Where you work, in your home, wherever. It's fine to have rules that God didn't etch in stone. But anytime we get our rules in a priority above God's rules. Anytime we find ourselves willing to fight for our rules and ignoring God's, there's always going to be problems. And you know this. You've felt this. What happens at a job when you have a boss who maybe, like, you come back from your lunch hour and your boss is there to say, you're two minutes late from lunch today. That's the rule. Is it okay that he has that rule? Yeah. Were you two minutes late? Yeah. Shouldn't be a problem. What happens if that's, he always is with the stopwatch at your lunch hour. But he tends to ignore, he's the kind of person that ignores God's rules where God calls people clearly to be kind, courteous, Loving, others-focused, humble. See, if, if your boss is an others-focused, loving, humble person, when she tells you you are two minutes late from lunch, it's a lot easier to take than when your boss is someone who never pays, it, seems to have no heed of what God says a person ought to be and then calls you on his rules. Isn't that true? The church, the church in general, has had trouble with number one for 2,000 years. We could give examples of this all day long. The church has come up with rules. Nothing wrong with the church coming up with rules. But what has tended to happen is the church tends to confuse Rules that God made clearly and rules that the church came up with for other reasons. And we always have problems when we conflate the two. When we have... uh, I'll give you an example just from the history of the Berean Fellowship of Churches, right? We are from that side of the tracks where back in the day, no games with dice, right? Right? There's no way I would have been able to preach without a tie and wearing denim. (gasps) Right? That's like, that's our heritage. No movies. Um, What tended to happen when people started to get out of line from those rules? Churches would punt on be kind, be generous, be filled with love, be humble. Uh, because we we try to use fear and coercion to get people back into our rules that aren't God's rules. So that's one lesson from this passage. A second one, leading selfishly ultimately damages everyone, including the leader. And if you're not a leader, you can go ahead and insert the word living selfishly in here. It works just fine with the same it was just a couple chapters ago King Saul got off to such a great start. Such a great start, the prophet Samuel was suddenly happy Saul was king. What changed? He, was, he, he united the country. They fought successfully. He gave God all of the credit. It was awesome. Then Saul got selfish. It's been said that we all tend to see ourselves as the hero of our own Story, the hero of our own movie, the hero of our own show. That's Saul's problem. It's a pretty good metaphor for our own selfishness. The problem is though, when we get me-centric, my life is about me, that does damage to all of our relationships and it damages us. How did that make me feel? How what that person did to me and how I feel, it it just, it just starts to make help the others around us feel okay being selfish. It drains the life out of our relationships. If we're leaders, before long people will know this guy, this gal, she only wants, they're only in it for them that will bleed through the entire organization. The cure for that and the truth is Jesus Christ is the hero of every one of our stories, whether we realize it or not. The cure for number two is is asking myself, not what do I want out of my life? What does Jesus want out of my life? Was that person still mean? Yes. How does he want me to respond? Not, how do I focus on what they did and how it made me feel? How can I glorify Jesus in the way I respond to that person? That's two. Third lesson from this, leading or living selfishly, yet trying to placate God never works for very long. Saul did this. Saul leads the entire nation in a very selfish direction. He always tries to throw God some crumbs. I'll build an altar, we'll do this. Oh, well, I'll ask God uh, to give me direction now that I'm going down this path he doesn't even want me on. In general, it's really hard to to not fall into this one. I just live my life, do what I want, but I go to church I put a hundred bucks in a little box on the back wall. Really, I am just trying to get what I want out of my life. I just try not to mess up too bad so God doesn't whack me. Again, who is going to be the hero of your story this year? You or the one you call Lord. And then finally, hearing from God must start with the stuff he's told us clearly. King Saul had been ordered very clearly what to do and what not to do, and he disobeyed that. But then, later on, when he wants to hear from God, he you know, asks God, please lead me down this path you don't even want me on. Right? God doesn't work that way. When we want to hear from God, we have to start with what he has told us clearly, right? We, we won't always hear, where does he want me to live? Where does he want me to work? What houses do he want me to buy? But there is stuff he has told us clearly that will direct us in those paths. I'll tell you what, let's pray and I want to bring this to the table right here. Actually, leave that up for me, Seth, if you would. Let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of 1 Samuel and all that you have taught us uh, in that. Thank you, God, for the example, the negative example of a not very good king in Saul. God, help us to make sure we hear clearly your rules and, and make those the ones we try hardest to follow. Not because following your rules makes us... Uh, acceptable in your sight, but, but because they are what is best and will make us the kind of man or woman uh, you want us to be. They lead to, to thriving in the long run. God, help us to see Jesus as the hero of our story uh, moving forward in this year. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, these books, First and Second Samuel, really are about the search for the good king. Have we found the good king in 1 Samuel yet? No. David's going to like almost be the good king. Just like so close. But he just points to the good king. We're going to take some time to remember the good king. Let's see how, let's, let's give Jesus a scorecard in what we talked about today. Which did Jesus have a hard time with man-made rules being uh, put above his father's rules? Yes, all the time. In fact, the people he had the hardest time with were people who made their own religious rules that weren't God's rules. Did Jesus lead selflessly in a way that was others-focused and would be best for others, or did he lead selfishly? No, he refused the temptation to take right the authority, the crown, whatever. Did Jesus just try to do his own thing and placate God kind of on the side as a kind of a side hobby? No, he did everything he did for the benefit of other people and the glory of God. And Jesus did Jesus make sure he spent time hearing clearly from the Father? Yes. If Jesus needed that, How much more do us? So now let's spend some time. I'm going to pray for the symbol of his body, the bread, while the guys come forward. Let's spend some time uh, in communion with the good king this morning. Let's pray. Father God, um, you told us to remember as often as we pass these plates that you allowed the good king to be destroyed due to our sin. And so we want to spend some time in remembrance uh, of that sacrifice and of that obedience. And the most others focused thing anyone has ever done for us was the Lord Jesus uh, leading by sacrifice. Leading by losing and uh, overcoming by submitting to the will of the Father. As the bread comes around, bless our time as we remember his body broken for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you think leading our families, our businesses, our farms, classrooms in the way we talked about this morning you think sometimes that would be costly I think sometimes it make us feel weak, taken advantage of it will but there's, there's a great leader who has gone ahead of us in, in leading that way who would allow the very ones he created to nail him to a wooden cross, spit on him and to mock him just for their own good. The night before that happened, he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He told them, this is my body. It is broken for you. And he asked them to do this in remembrance of him. Father, as the cup comes around, we remember uh, the blood that is payment enough uh, for the sins we have sinned. And we remember what Jesus did on our behalf, and we thank you for his blood and his name. Amen. We've seen a contrast between Jonathan and Saul soon that's going to turn into a contrast between Saul and David and Saul's always the bad example and as we read through that we're trying not to be like Saul but you know what the truth is we're way more like Saul than we are David from today's passage how about this you ever have a rule in your household parents it's not one of God's rules But someone transgresses your rule and you wind up punting on the rules God has told you to live by in the name of enforcing your rules on the ones you've told. Whereas King David is going to say, well, your law is my total delight. I meditate on it day and night. Who are you more like? Yet we just sing a song over and over. We said, I know you love me. I know you love me. How can both sides of that be true? How can we be so much like Saul, one of the worst examples in the Bible, and stand together and sing, I know you love me. How do you know? This is how you know. he was nailed to a cross by people he created so that he could pay the penalty their sins deserve so that his love could be for us and on us and with us he held the cup up that night So this is a cup of the new covenant. That's where we get the forgiveness of sins. And he said, do this in remembrance of him. Thanks for being here this morning. Happy New Year. Feel free to stay and eat with us. See you next week. Love you guys.